Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. I chuckled to myself this week because uh, last week we finished off the series in Philippians and we closed off with a, a message on contentment, if you remember that, and dealing with uh, kind of jealousy and trying to find contentment in our lives. And I put that down and then picked up the Gospel of John to find that what are we looking at today? Envy. And I thought, what are you, what are you doing here, God? Like, are you trying to say something to me or to us? Um, let's see, because uh, I think he is. And when these kind of things happen, you've got to just pay attention and say, Lord, are you trying to do something in my heart? And I think what God is doing with us is he's trying to scalpel out some heart issues that are stopping us from experiencing some of the joy that he really wants us to have in our life. So we're looking at John chapter three. And let me just set the scene for us. We have John the Baptist or John the Baptizer and Jesus, who were second cousins who grew up aware of each other. We don't know how much they saw of each other growing up, maybe over the summer holidays or whatever. They kind of connected as their families got together, but they were well aware of each other. And then John the Baptist, knowing his role to prepare the way for the Messiah, he comes preaching about the kingdom of God, preparing the way for whom he would eventually be persuaded is actually his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. So this was a huge thing for him. And he was here and Jesus and John the Baptist ministries are thoroughly interlocked. Because even in John chapter 1, we get this poetic, epic, kind of cosmic introduction to the person of Jesus. And just spliced in there, out of nowhere, is this other introduction to John the Baptist as well in chapter 1. And so they both come, their ministries interlocked. John starts first, and then Jesus, we don't know for how long their ministries overlapped. Maybe about six months or so, where John was preaching, and Jesus was preaching at the same time. And what we find out in here in this passage is that both John's followers and Jesus' followers had both gone out into the countryside right now and they were both gathering a crowd and they were both baptizing people and they were both preaching about the kingdom and Jesus's numbers were beginning to increase faster than John the Baptist numbers and it seems like more than that some of John the Baptist followers were going to follow Jesus so much so that in chapter 4 verse 1 we said now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John this is like if you're in business another business coming into your market and taking a larger share of the the market this is a new colleague coming into the office and them seeming to do better and hitting their kbis quicker than you this is one of your girlfriends or boyfriends who's suddenly in a relationship and it seems pretty serious and they seem to have found someone and you really wish that you had found something this is a new church coming into town and that church growing much quicker than we're growing and what happens in all of those scenarios Envy can creep in, can't it? The green-eyed monster, you're looking over your shoulder and thinking like, I wish I had what they had. And this is what we have. So what we're going to do today is very simple. We're going to look at John the Baptist's followers and three marks of envy and why it's so destructive. And then we're going to look at John the Baptist because he seems to live kind of happily indifferent to this prospering of Jesus and his followers. 
So firstly, John the Baptist's followers and then John the Baptist. And three reasons and three marks of envy and why it's, why it's so destructive. This is the first thing we find here. Envy mostly works against those that we are close with. And that's either geographically or like a family member or a friend or someone who is kind of in the same field or has the similar passions or gifting or calling as you. Envy works particularly against those people. So Os Guinness, he wrote a book called Calling. He said this, one of the most horrifying aspects of envy is that we are most likely to feel envious of those who are similarly called, equipped and gifted. Those people with whom we share the most, from whom we stand to learn most, and those we are those we often most resent. And then he quotes from Thomas Mann and he says, we are always most vulnerable to envying those closest to our own callings and giftings. Musicians generally envy musicians, not politicians. Politicians are the politicians. Sports people are the sports people. Professors are the professors. Ministers, God forbid, are the ministers. And isn't that true? I mean, I, I can know in my own life, I, I have never had an ounce of envy towards the musicians in our church. I've never looked at the band and thought, I'm so jealous and envious of their gifting. But I know I've been on YouTube and I've seen preachers who are preaching better than me. And I've thought, hmm, I wish I could, I wish I could communicate like they communicated. I know even with churches, I've been reflecting this week thinking, I'm actually really thrilled when other churches flourish in other cities. Like, other, you know, in other countries, praise God, may the power of God come. But you know, like, I'm bearing my soul here, where it, it sometimes I feel a wince of envy is when other churches in central London seem to be growing faster than Trinity, because that's what I'm doing. And I look over my shoulder and I think, ah, oh, what, what, that's... That's when envy comes. You think, you look, people who are doing similar things or in close proximity. Isn't it one of the saddest things that it's actually sometimes our family members that we can be most envious of? Siblings. You think, why are they doing so well and I'm stuck? So it works closest, which is damaging on two fronts. One, it means that actually we can't bless those people. We can't, those whom we're envious, we can't envy and bless and want their good at the same time. It's funny here because the, the disciples here, they don't even call Jesus by his name. They say, all are going to him. Him, that one over there, we can't bear to call him. But there's this like sudden distance created. So suddenly there is this rot that can creep into a relationship if you are envious of them. It can keep you at a distance. And secondly, oftentimes the people who are closest to us are those whom we can learn from the most. And if we're envious, how are we ever going to learn from those who could actually help us grow in our calling and gifting? It's actually a hugely damaging thing. This is what happened with John and Jesus. I mean, they're both gathering a crowd. They're both preaching about the kingdom of God. They're both baptizing. John and Jesus are both preaching essentially the same message. They're both now in the countryside. And when John's ba- John the Baptist's followers come to him, they're not saying, you know, all oh, the philosophers or not the religious mainstream leaders in Jerusalem or all oh, the Roman Empire, why are they making things so difficult? No, what's their gripe with? It's Jesus' followers, the ones who are doing exactly the same things in the countryside, preaching the kingdom of God. So we have to watch out for this. Firstly, it works with those who are close to us. Secondly, envy works undercover. I mean, I, I've been in lots of groups where 
people have shared their sins, you know, shared their wrongdoings. And with like, all sorts of sins, you know, you name it. But I was reflecting, thinking, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone, it could have happened, but I'm not sure I've heard anyone ever confess to envy. Have you heard anyone tell you, like, I'm just so envious of that person and their lifestyle and their money and their looks and their relationships or their career, whatever it is? Like, I don't think that ever really gets confessed. Why? Because to confess to envy has got to be one of the most humiliating and embarrassing things to admit to, isn't it? Doesn't it? It makes you feel so petty and mean-spirited and small to admit that actually they have something that you would really like and you just feel envy you just want it you want their life and it's hilarious because especially when I think when you see this this is what's happening here envy works under disguises I think and it often works under concern for other people envy doesn't come out naked and say I just want your lifestyle it can often manifest itself under disguises of like theological concern, character concern for the person, <laughs> concern about how they're doing their job really. And this is what happens here, because in verse 25, we read this. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, which is like the theological meaning of the baptism. Like the baptism was symbolic of this purifying, this getting ready for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there is this discussion arising. Now, do you think they were actually concerned about the theological accuracy of Jesus' baptism? It is never mentioned again. Purification never comes up. You can just imagine John the Baptist's disciples, you know, gathering with this Jew. They're like, I've heard that, you know, Jesus isn't really doing the baptism properly. No, I've heard the same thing as well. I've heard that he's selling out. There's a cheap gospel that he's, you know, he's preaching something. He's just gathering a crowd. He doesn't care about disciple making. He's not even baptizing them himself. Did you hear that? He's delegating out. Yeah, and there are all these concerns about maybe Jesus is trying to, is he really here for the kingdom or is he here for himself they are raising these kind of concerns about Jesus but only when later it actually becomes naked envy because when they come to John and say to him rabbi he who was with you across the Jordan do you remember the one that you baptized like he came to you at first you didn't but he, he you baptized him now he's officing this one he says look he is baptizing and all are going to him the, the, like the disguise comes off It was never about purification. It was always just about naked envy. But it comes at first under a disguise. And I think for us it works the same. Like, if you're continually griping about your boss, and I'm just trying to operate with the Holy Spirit here, I don't know. I don't know your life. You know your life. And if you're always concerned about your boss and, like, the way they do things and, like, they're just not doing it right you could do a better job. If you've always got concerns about how they're doing their job, is there a possibility that there is envy just under the disguise of concern? I don't know, maybe. Or someone else who seems to kind of prosper the whole time and in your mind you're wondering about, just wonder whether they're really grateful to God for all of their blessings. I'm not sure they've really got the character to cope with those kind of, you know, you're always concerned about something in their character. I don't know if they really understand the value of money. They've got another promotion. Do they really understand concern over concern? Or you're wondering about someone's character. Or the, is it possible that underneath that disguise there is actually just, because it never comes really just like, you, we can kid ourselves. That's the second thing. And the third thing is this. Envy just makes you plain miserable. 
There is nothing fun in envy. Joseph Epstein, who's an American writer, he's written this short little book called Envy. And he makes this point. Because he says, like the other sins in life, they actually have some, some pleasure attached to them. Which is why like, we keep falling for it. Like there is some pleasure in pride thinking that you're better than someone else. There's a kind of like slight boosting and puffing up. You think, okay, it's momentary, but there's some pleasure in it. Or lust, there might be some pleasure in that moment, even if you know it's destructive in the long run. Or sloth, you might say another night in front of Netflix, another, you know, another late morning in bed. Like that has got some like, but envy, he says, has no pleasure in it whatsoever. From beginning to end, it is just a rotting sin in your life. He says this, he says, of all of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. You just don't want to go there. And you know that experience, don't you? If you've ever had that feeling of envy, it's like there is nothing pleasurable in it. It just makes you miserable. So Proverbs 14.30 says this, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You will not find joy in your life if there are corners and shadows in your heart where envy is growing. So we want to cut it. Amen. We want to cut the root of envy to experience the kind of joy that John the Baptist seems to experience here. So how does John the Baptist live between Jesus and his followers and seem to be happily kind of acknowledging that Christ is actually increasing? How how does he find this kind of joy and contentment? The secret is found really in this very famous phrase now in chapter 3 verse 30 where he says, he, that is Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is an attitude of the heart. This is him saying, I want Christ to be made more known than me. This is a desire of John, but it's also as commentators say, when he says must increase and must decrease, what he's saying is there is, a, there is a purpose of God that has to be played out in history where God and the fame of his son must increase. This is his purpose. This is the reason why the world is set into place so that Christ and his glory must increase so that all will come to recognize that he is the Lord. And so he says back in 130, he says this, this Jesus is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What John is saying in that, he's not saying like he's just, you know, if you're going to put a chart together of significant men in our generation, Jesus would be like number one, I'd be number four. What he's saying here when Jesus is before me, is actually Jesus existed before I existed. Jesus in another place in John 8 says, before Abraham was, I am, saying that actually before our forefathers existed, I existed, I was in existence as the divine being. John is tipping us to the fact that he knows that Jesus has his origins in heaven, that he comes from a place in eternity past, that he is God himself and all must bow to him and all must see him increase and us decrease. This is the worldview that John the Baptist lives with. And I want to just tease this out for us because he's acknowledging that Jesus Christ lived before the creation came into being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was aware that he is the Logos, the Word, the one who created all things. 
And out of this overflow of contented joy in God, he creates the heavens and the earth, we're told. So that the heavens declare the glory of God. That God creates this play for us to exist in. And the center of this play is God himself. In Romans 1.20, on display in the world is his eternal uh, nature and his divine power. This is what we see when we look around. That God puts himself at the center and places us within the created world so that we can enjoy God as the center of all things. God places himself, as it were, as the sun in the solar system where we are orbiting around him. He puts us in a world where we are on the sidelines and he is at the very center with his glory being displayed. And this is how the world is meant to operate that you and me as like Mars and Earth and Jupiter and Saturn or whatever we might want to be, we're designed to orbit the sun. And this is where we find our life, actually not in the center, but on the sidelines, looking at the center who is God in the full display of his glory. The reason why so many people, I think, find Christianity hard because there is a moment where we have to step out of the center of our own life and acknowledge that another is at the center and it's God. We find that very difficult. And in fact, many people um, would, would kind of call God a tyrant or an egomaniac because throughout the scripture, he keeps calling people to worship him. You ever thought that? Why does God ask people to work? Like, is God needy? Like, why does he need us to worship him? C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, who became a Christian at around the age of 30, he struggled with this same, and this kept him from Christianity. He said, why does God keep asking me to worship him? Like, he needs something. Am I just here like a fan just to kind of like prop him up and say how, does, is he needing of something of me? Is he just an egomaniac? And C.S. Lewis, he came, he came to kind of this thought process. Like, if it were actually existentially true that God existed and he was the creator of everything, if that were potentially true, and if he were the most beautiful and glorious and potent being that could ever be known in all of space and time history, if that were potentially true, would it not make sense for us to actually praise him and adore him and worship him. Because he says that actually for us to praise and worship God, to praise a beautiful being, to put that at the center of our affections is actually to bring us a fullness of joy. He works like this. He said, if you've ever seen a good film or like you watched a good show, like what do you normally want to do with that show? You want to tell someone like, you know, you have to chat like, what are you watching at the moment? We're watching this really good show. You have to watch it. Parks and Recreation. If you ever not watched Parks and Recreation, you need to watch Parks and Recreation. 20 minute episodes, super funny. And it gets funner as time goes on. Anyway, you got to like, I tell people like, you've got to watch this show. It's so funny. And that's what we do, right? Why? Because there is something pleasurable actually in praising some, a, a show, something that's... And C.S. Lewis says God's exactly the same. He asks us to worship him because as we worship, as we open our mouths and praise this Jesus Christ, what happens is that joy fills up in our own hearts. He says it like this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. 
This is what we are made for. And yet we struggle, don't we, to put ourselves at the sideline and God at the center. And what happens? Like a solar system collapsing in on itself, pain, collision, drama ensue in our life because we are always trying to place ourselves at the center, wondering why others seem to be cramping in on our style. And it's into this world that Jesus Christ comes, into a world filled with envying hearts. And Jesus does this. He says, I am the bread of life. Come to me and you'll be satisfied. I am the true living water. Come to me and you will never thirst again. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, he says, he places himself at the very center, unashamedly, unabashedly, unembarrassedly. He says, I am the very center and you come to me. I am the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't come like the other religious leaders say, look, I'm going to step on the sidelines and point you to God. Jesus steps right into the center and says, I am the center. You stand on the sidelines and come to me and you will find what your heart truly needs. It's crazy in its audacity. Either this is true or it's false. We have to make up our mind. Thomas comes to him and he bows down and worships and Jesus doesn't get embarrassed and say, Thomas, that's too much. Like, stand up, man. Like, where's your dignity? No, he accepts the worship of Thomas. He unabashedly puts himself at the center of everything even our envy when we wish we were at the center we wish we were in the limelight we wish we had the whatever it might be and we're told Jesus Christ is crucified underneath our envy when he stands before Pontius Pilate Pilate discerns we're told in Mark 15 that it's out of envy that the religious leaders actually have Jesus Christ crucified It's out of envy because they feel like Christ is actually cramping their style and he is placing him at the center when what? They want to be at the center. And Christ willingly dies under our envy and our envy sees Christ crucified. We try to snuff him out. We try to push Christ out to the sidelines so that we can have the place that we feel that we want in our hearts. And he dies with our sin and our envy which is not the end of the story because God works differently to man. And out of the pleasure of the heart of the Father, the Father raises Jesus Christ so that he might become once again the centre of it all and the point of forgiveness for everyone who would come admitting there's envy in my heart. And God works so differently to you and me because God the Father doesn't operate with envy. Totally the other way around. When God the Father lifts Jesus Christ up from the dead, he then invites him up to ascend and be at the right hand of him and places him on the throne. And we're told the Father gives Jesus all authority, all knowledge and all prestige and all prominence. So the very end of history, when we read in Revelation, there is this beautiful moment throughout Revelation when the Father almost disappears to the sidelines. What's... Who do you see from beginning to end in Revelation? It's Jesus. Who is worshipped in Revelation? It's Jesus. Who is adored in Revelation? It's Jesus. Who is given honour and glory and praise? It's Jesus. Who is there with the final note of the Bible? It's Jesus Christ. And you sense the Father's pleasure as Jesus Christ takes centre stage. This is the heart of a contented God to see Jesus Christ lifted up. 
And this is the world in which John the Baptist lives in, where he knows that this God is at the center and he's just a bit part. And he's happy to play a sideline part and see God known and increase. It's crazy, isn't it? Because most of us day to day, I think probably basically feel like we're the star of our own show. Like basically, we don't say it like that because that just sounds crass. But, you know, basically we feel like I'm living my life and I'm doing my thing and everyone else is kind of orbiting around me. I'm like, I'm just doing my thing. I'm like, just watch out world when the world really know who I really am. Like that's, and yet John the Baptist lives with this totally other kind of worldview. So what I want to do is close with three steps. Then we're going to take communion. Three steps that John the Baptist takes that help us find the kind of joy that he seems to live with. This is the first step underneath this worldview that God is at the center. Firstly, John admits his limitations. Look at this in 3 verse 28. He says, you, talking to his followers, you yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. John happily and often told his followers, I am not. The very, in chapter one, even John, the, the gospel writer, he writes this, he says, he wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Picking up from John, he wasn't this, but he is that. He says it again when people are asking John, who are you? Like we can sense you're someone special, but really, who are you? And so in 1 verse 20, they come to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer. He says, I'm just the voice of the one crying in a wilderness. I'm on the sidelines pointing you to the one who is at the center. John readily admits his limitations and says, I'm not. Which is a fundamental step for us to recognize our creatureliness and our limitations. And it's part of the reason why I think we find it so hard to find contentment. Because from a primary school age, you're told what? You can be anything you want to be. If you work hard enough, don't listen to the doubters or the haters. You can be whoever you want to be. Whatever you want in life, you go after it. You work hard. You can go and get it. We are fed that. And then what happens? You get to your 20s and life slaps you in the face and says, no, you can't. (laughs) You can't be anything that you want to be. Look how normal your life looks. And you go through this horrible grinding process of realizing your limitations, that life is not going to offer you the world, that you are limited. And there is a process that we have to go through of saying, I'm not that. I'm not at the center. I can't be this. I am just a creature before my creator. And learning who we are not is so much of the lesson of contentment this is what John the Baptist did so the first thing is this we accept our limitations and then secondly we accept the providence of God he says this in verse 27 John answered sensing their envy he says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven 
You can't get anything unless it's a gift of grace from God. Everything is a gift. And if I'm on the sideline and I'm looking at everyone else who's on the sideline and we're all receiving from God who is at the centre, everything is just apportioned by grace. It's not because they're in more favour with God than me. It's not because somehow they've got some special relationship. It's just simply a gift of grace. Paul says, what do you have in your life that you did not receive? Yeah, so well, well, hang on. I'm the one waking up early on a Monday morning to go to work. God's not waking. I'm, I'm, well, who gave you the body, the power, the strength, the ability, even the gift and the skills to get into that place in the first place? It was God himself who sustains us. Everything we have on the sidelines as we look at God has been given by him. So what do we have? When we stand before Jesus Christ, who was crucified, he had to die and suffer for us. What is it that we have to bring to the table? What do we have to offer in our hands? Nothing except what God gives to us. So John says, look, I'm happy that Jesus is increasing because that's the purposes of God. That's the providence of God. That's a gift of God to Jesus Christ. It was my gift to play my small part. Now it's over to Jesus. Imagine just living that like this business is thriving now. Like, sure, you've got to work hard if you're in business, but like, I'm content. God's at the center for me. We accept the providence of God. And then thirdly, we find this. We rejoice in God. Because John uses this analogy of this marriage. Because he says in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, talking about this wedding day, and the friend of the bridegroom, or the best man, He stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He's saying that the the bridegroom has a best man, and the best man's job is to stay on the sidelines, right? And what is it? Like today, you know, you've got to get the suits, like look after the ring. You're like, make sure the best man looks good so that the groom looks good. Stick on. No one wants a best man. Like the bride's coming down the aisle like, hang on, I've got this. I'm going to handle this moment. Like just, you know, getting in front of the camera and kind of taking up center stage. That, that's the, the goal of the best man is simply to almost evaporate into the sideline so that all eyes are on the groom. And John the Baptist says, I've found joy because I'm on the sideline and Christ is the groom. He is taking center stage, ready to receive his people to himself. I am complete in my joy because my job is done and it gets more than that because John is not just calling out this interesting analogy from a wedding he's actually pulling out from the old testament all this imagery where the old testament prophets would refer to God as our husband he says this in Isaiah Isaiah 62 verse 4 prophesies about Jesus he says you shall no more be named forsaken And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called. My delight is in her. This is God speaking over us. And your land is married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What does Isaiah says? He is going to come like a husband with his bride with delight and joy over you and me. 
And John finds this delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself. And he says, my joy is found as I know that Christ has come, taken on my envy and finds this ultimate, infinite singing delight. And when you're in that moment where someone that you treasure is delighting in you, are you that concerned about all the other peripheral stuff? I remember almost coming up to my 14th wedding anniversary with Tori. If you're watching Tori, hello, she's on the live stream today. And I remember on my wedding day, I was not concerned about anything else. I was just happy that I had persuaded Toria somehow to marry me. I was like, I, I don't know how I did this, but she's got a ring on her finger now and it's done. So this is great. I was just delighted that she felt happy about me. Nothing else mattered. Career, finance, opportunities, thoughts of the future. In that moment, the only thing that mattered was her. And isn't that the Christian life? That when we come to realize when God looks at us, the thing that matters in his heart is us. And we find surpassing worth in Jesus Christ and our hearts are filled with joy. What happens to all the peripherals? They begin to seem increasingly less important. So as we close, we're going to break bread together and we're going to drink the wine to celebrate Christ's death. And it's this. It's a remembrance that Christ has come to you and taken your envy on himself and was raised to a brand new life to welcome you into a relationship, to invite you to be married to him, to experience his delight and have your heart melted again and again. So let's pray together.